As you know by now, this is our missions weekend. We try to have uh, a specially designated weekend every year uh, for the purpose of uh, contemplating what God is doing in the world, in the movement of his gospel and his kingdom. It also gives us an opportunity to be reacquainted with the missionaries that we have been blessed to be partners with. And we have several of them that we are partners with financially and also uh, by your knowledge and prayers for them. And also some we've been able to send teams to help with various aspects of the missions that they are overseeing. If you are wondering about further details related to those missionaries, in the hall there is a a, a map that has all the missionaries that we support on a regular basis. Also, you get a a weekly newsletter, or excuse me, a monthly newsletter. Then usually there's a weekly e-newsletter that will put blips there about different updates. And your insert has an update. Your bulletin can have an update. On our website there are connect points many ways which, uh, can, that can be useful to you so you know how to pray for our missionaries, what they're doing, what's happening, and even how to contact them. Uh, one thing you might prayerfully consider in addition to the uh, summer mission trips that we have every year uh, would be for you to consider prayerfully uh, joining the missions committee. We need about three to five more members of the missions committee. They meet on a monthly basis. John Myers is our acting chairman, and we have Scott Creasy as our elder oversight, uh, oversight elder for that committee. See either of those two brothers or myself. If you are interested, men or women, we need three to five more members. We'd love to have you part, be part of this really exciting team. You get to be the first one that hears what's happening abroad and also hearing from new missionaries. There's just so much uh, that goes on with this committee, and it's important. We need lots of people to be there and be regular and committed so we can be faithful in this area of stewardship that God has given us. Today we have uh, before us uh, Pastor uh, Patrick Kanak preaching this morning. We heard from Bob Heppy with Surge, the same organization Patrick works with. Uh, he led our Sunday school. And then tonight Ben and Julie Jensen will come and, and give us an update on where they are with their mission to Japan. Remind us what they'll be doing as they're getting closer and closer to being sent. And so we look forward to seeing them hearing from them tonight at 6. Uh, Patrick Kanak is an ordained minister in the PCA. Uh, he and his wife Jennifer have one son, Parker, who is 10 years old, and they live in the Philadelphia area currently. Patrick grew up in western Illinois. Uh, he attended Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. Then he went to Wheaton Graduate School, and then finally New College uh, at the University of Edinburgh. For eight years, he served at Naperville Presbyterian Church just outside of Chicago as the assistant pastor for adult education and spiritual formation. Uh, For the past seven years, he has been serving at Surge, a sending agency for missionaries all over the world. Patrick is the area director for renewal, and among other duties, he is a key player in developing the curriculum and training content for missionaries And really for churches. Our church uses some of it in youth ministry and it's great curriculum that he oversees and helps to write even. And so his main duty really is to be the person in the mission organization that keeps the missionaries on focus with the content for their teaching. The gospel being the most important aspect of that content and all those discipleship components that flow from the gospel. He is that person who is really appointed to see that that stays constant and that each missionary is trained well in understanding it and renewed and refreshed in it when they're on the field. 
So he's a very, very important support role uh, here, and then a leadership role in developing these curriculums and these training materials that are useful. Uh, Patrick's greatest claim to fame, though, is probably that he introduced me, and I hate to admit this, but he introduced me to my wife. So we all owe him quite a bit. I think you would agree. Amen. Uh, the story is, and I'm going to tell because it'll get messed up by him, and he's trustworthy with the word, but these stories are difficult for him to remember the details. But basically, uh, my friend and I, my friend was his roommate at the time, they, uh, we wanted to get to Florida for spring break. It was going into our, it was our junior year, if I recall, and we had no money to get to Florida. We didn't know how we would do it. And he said, hey, I've got a way. Uh, he was the president of the band at that time, and my friend and I were not musical, as you know. Uh, so we thought, what do you want us to do in the band? I mean, what can we do? Well, we need people to, you know, lug the equipment around, set it up, take it down, that kind of stuff. Free trip to Florida. We'll take it. That sounds good. We'll do it. Well, what he didn't tell us is that that's the spring trip. Well, the band takes a winter trip, which means you have to come back a week early from winter break and go to Iowa for a week <laughs> traveling around, with all due respect to you Iowans. <laughs> and then when we went to Florida, it was two days out of the two weeks that we traveled down there. But I'm not complaining because it was in Iowa that I first laid eyes on the piano and flute player, and I said, who's she? And he told me. And so I owe him. <laughs> but it's been a great pleasure to keep in connection with him over the years as he has been ministering, especially now with Serge, and for him to use those particular gifts that he has been honing and really in a place of uh, real usefulness where he's at. He served uh, our, or he spoke at our men's retreat about seven years ago, and he preached here then. It was the year just before coming into this sanctuary. So it's once again a great a joy and pleasure to have Patrick back now to come and open the word to us. Thank you, Tony. It is uh, it's a, it's a great introduction, if for no other reason than it does uh, Tony's sanctification good to have to say nice things about me in public, which I know he just hates. You know, uh, Nathan didn't have any problem attracting a quality wife. Tony, on the other hand, it was clear that he was going to need some serious help. So I, I was glad to step in and, and provide such a valuable service there. We're going to be in Luke 7 uh, this morning, so you can go ahead and grab your Bibles and start turning there. And we're going to be thinking about what uh, encourages us, what motivates us to live missionally, and uh, the importance of why we do what we do was brought home to me on a summer missions trip that I took. I was in high school, uh, and I spent the entire summer in Gibraltar, which is in the very southern tip of Spain, kind of where uh, Spain pinches down and almost touches North Africa. And so I was with a, a team of high schoolers and some adults. It was an evangelism team, and so we did open-air preaching, and we did uh, services uh, with the churches on Sunday. Uh, but one of the regular activities that we did is uh, we would go out in the afternoons, and uh, we would have uh, spiritual surveys, and we would try and strike up conversations with people, ask if they could, uh, would be willing to take a short survey, ask them questions, and the hope was that it would spark uh, some open door, some spiritual conversation uh, with the folks. And, you know, we'd usually go for about two hours at a time, and, you know, people didn't necessarily want to talk. And if you were really diligent, you could get about, you know, four of those done an hour. So eight, eight would be, you know, a really good, good number to have gotten through. And I made sure I always got through eight. 
And when I noticed that people didn't get through, you know, they only had four or five, I kind of thought to myself, geez, you guys must not be trying very hard. I mean, what are you doing? You're hanging out in the park here? We're here to be serving Jesus. You guys should be working harder. So uh, the only really solid conversation that I had uh, the entire summer happened, I can still remember crystal clear, it was a bright sunny afternoon, uh, there was a bakery with a bench outside, and there was a lady sitting on the bench, uh, and I went up and I started to talk to her, she was very happy to take the survey, and what unfolded was a very engaging conversation. She was interested in spiritual matters. Uh, She had gone to church when she was younger, but hadn't been in quite some time. She wasn't really clear uh, who Jesus was for her at at that moment, but she was interested. She was open. And I would ask questions. She would ask questions. She would want to know what the Bible said. I would take her to some verses. It, It was really a remarkable experience. Until the point when I happened to glance down at my watch, and I realized I had been talking to her for almost an hour. And that meant that I only had three surveys done for that day. And right after that, the thought just kind of lodged in the back of my mind. You know what? You've only got three surveys. But if she accepts Jesus as her Savior right here, right now, it doesn't matter that you only have three surveys. That, that will cancel it out. That would be fantastic. And so with all the, the charm and tact and grace that a sophomore in high school has, I started to push and she was very gracious, and I pushed harder, and she was still gracious, and I pushed harder still. And finally she said, Patrick, I really feel like this was a God-appointed meeting. I feel like Jesus sent you here this day to talk to me, and I'm so grateful for that. I'm thinking about things I haven't thought about in a long time. As a matter of fact, I really think uh, that I'm going to go to church this Sunday, and I haven't been in over a decade. And instead of being excited and grateful about that, I just kind of picked up my stuff in a huff and I looked down and I said, well, you know, if you don't want to go to heaven, I guess that's your business then. And I stalked off. And you guys are shocked. You can see why Serge doesn't let me out of the main office very often, right? Why did I respond that way to her? It was a great conversation. I was doing what I had come to do. I had given up a summer. I had raised the money. I was away from family and friends. I was there. I was doing all of those things. Yeah, in that moment, my response to her revealed something that was lurking in my heart that mostly I was unaware of. As a matter of fact, it wasn't until several years later that I really started to understand what was happening. I wasn't reaching out to that woman because I loved her. I was reaching out to that person because it was my duty. And doing my religious duty was how I earned and maintained my reputation and my identity. And so what happened when that reputation was threatened even just a little bit? My response was visceral and it was ugly. Fine, I'm done with you. You can't help me anymore. Now, I don't think Jesus was surprised that day when that happened. As a matter of fact, I'm sure he wasn't. He knows more about us than we know about ourselves. And he had run into the same problem before with a fellow named Simon who happened to be a Pharisee. And so we're going to look at the passage where Simon and Jesus are interacting this morning. So we're going to be in Luke chapter 7 at the end of the chapter. And before we read God's word, let's uh, pause for a moment and let's ask him to really speak to us. Father, you're the teacher this morning. It's your word, it's your message, it's your spirit. Uh, We are your people. And so if you don't speak, we won't hear. 
there is nothing that I can say apart from you that will make any sense. And yet I know you want us to listen. I know that you want us to be changed. I know that you want to draw us to yourself. Open our ears. Soften our hearts. Give us open hands and expectant faces as we look towards you so we can hear your goodness and your grace and your mercy to us. Amen. So Luke chapter 7, we're going to start in verse 36. There's really three parts to our passage this morning. Uh, We're going to hear about a scandalous guest, and then Jesus is going to tell an unexpected parable, and we're going to see the outrageous conclusion. So Luke 7, starting in verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him, Jesus, to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with ointment. Now, Jesus had started to attract some some attention in his public teaching. And so uh, we're going to find out that the Pharisee's name was Simon. That comes a little later in the passage. So Simon and some of his buddies, buddies said, you know what, let's invite Jesus over for dinner so we can get a, you know, up-close view about this guy, what he's teaching, what he's doing. And so the invitation to come to dinner, you know, it, it was polite, but it wasn't friendly. It wasn't purely a social occasion. And it seems a little strange, you know, to the 21st century uh, ear, to hear that, that a woman who hadn't been invited just, just happened to show up at the house. But that was actually quite common in those days. When you would throw a big party or when there would be a guest of honor, there would be a certain number of people that would be invited uh, to come and share the meal, share the dinner. But often the windows were left open and the house would be left open. And if it was a large enough room, people were welcome to come and stand around the edges. They could hear the conversation. Often there would be some questions and answers uh, with the rabbi or the teacher or there would be some teaching going on. So even if you weren't invited to the main meal, it it was quite normal to have other people coming in and out of the house. And so uh, that's evidently what was happening in this case. Now, notice how the woman's described in verse 37, a woman of the city who was a sinner. And it's not just the generic, uh, it is the generic word for sinner, but the implication is very clear here. Uh, This is a woman who has committed adultery repeatedly. She might even be someone who accepted um, monetary uh, gifts, uh, uh, you know, to, to share company with her. She is well known in the community. She has a reputation. This is not the type of girl that you bring home to mom. And you can imagine the things that are said about this type of woman in a small town. The fact that she would dare show her face in this kind of setting certainly would have caused some consternation amongst the people who were there because everyone knew who she was. Everyone knew what she did. But she is drawn to Jesus so strongly that she is willing to come to a place where she is unwelcome. She is willing to face down the dirty looks and the angry whispers so that she can be with Jesus. Now it says that she came and she was standing behind him at his feet. You have to remember, in those days, for a formal dinner, they wouldn't uh, normally sit at a table uh, with chairs. There would be low sofas, and everyone would kind of recline on the sofa, and they would eat very leisurely. And the sofas would be arranged in kind of a rectangle, so it would go up and across and down. And Jesus and Simon were probably seated at the head table right up here. And the servants would come in between the sofas, and they'd bring the food and move things away. Uh, but everyone would be reclining, 
And so when it says that the woman was standing behind Jesus, Jesus is kind of laying down on the sofa, but she's standing. Everybody can see her. But they can only see her if they look at Jesus first. To see the woman means to see Jesus. And she comes and she stands there. And she's overcome with emotion by finally being in Jesus' presence. And, and she begins to cry. And Luke uses a very specific term here. It's the same word that's used of rain when it really starts to come down and soak dry ground and start to make it muddy. So she has a shower of tears that are coming down, a flow of tears that can't be stopped. And then, now, if this is not weird enough for everyone who's there, then she does something that would have made everyone in that room gasp. She's weeping so much, and her tears are falling on Jesus' feet. And as that's happening, she's noticed that Jesus hasn't been given any water to clean up his feet. And foot washing is a common theme in the New Testament. I, you know, I wasn't really sure, what, why are they so obsessed with feet all the time? But here's the thing. If you're wearing sandals and you're walking around in hot, dry, dusty lane all the time, your feet are always dirty. But not only are they dirty, I mean, the only reliable mode of transportation back in those days was very eco-friendly. It was very green. It it was so green, in fact, that the emissions were positively organic. And they were everywhere. And so not only were you walking through dirt and mud, but the organic emissions as well. And if you think about what was happening, Jesus is reclining on this low sofa. And the person next to him is reclining as well. And even if Jesus kind of tucks his feet back a little bit, his feet are going to be in very close proximity to the head of the next guest who's trying to eat. And so the fact that Jesus hadn't been offered any water to clean up was was a grave insult. And so the woman seeing this as her tears are falling on his feet, she undoes her hair everyone gasps because in those days at that time women always wore their hair up they never took it down except in private for their husbands and so here is this woman who undoes her hair her crowning glory and seeing that his feet are dirty and seeing that her tears are wetting his feet she begins to use her hair to dry his feet to clean them to clean jesus's filth and crusted feet It would have been shocking. Some of the rabbis record that a woman who takes her hair down in public are worthy of divorce. And it is such a sign that she's willing to do this. And she doesn't stop there because then she begins to kiss Jesus' feet. And occasionally, for a great teacher, students would pay homage by kind of, you know, bowing down and kissing near their feet. But Luke is clear that's not what's happening here. He's using a very intensive word. It's the same word that he's going to use in a couple chapters later when a rebellious son finally comes home and his father runs out to greet him and falls upon him and begins to kiss his neck. It's that word. It's the type of kissing you do to your child when you've lost them at the mall and you've spent 30 frantic minutes searching for them and you finally find them. And not only does she do that, then she takes this, this jar, and Luke is careful to point out the most expensive of expensive perfumes. Even, even a small little flask of it that women commonly wore around their neck could cost as much as an engagement ring these days. And she begins to pour it out and to perfume his feet and to massage it into his feet. And given the woman's status, given what she had done for a living, given the fact that she's no longer going to do that, 
this is quite possibly the most expensive thing she has ever owned or will ever own. And to give it up instead of selling it is a tremendous sacrifice. And Luke is very careful to set the scene. He uses verb tenses that indicate this happened over a long period of time. This wasn't something that happened quickly. It didn't happen quietly in a corner. It went on for a long time. Everyone saw this. Everyone saw what the woman was doing. Everyone saw how Jesus was responding. People were looking at each other and wondering, what is going on right here? But as we're about to see, almost everyone in that room, except for Jesus, missed what was truly going on. Verse 39, Jesus tells an unexpected parable. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered him. Notice he didn't ask a question, but Jesus answered him. Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. Now, if you're not up on your ancient, you know, coinage, a, a denarius was a single coin that a common laborer or a soldier would get at the end of the day for uh, their labor. So it was a day's worth of wages. Uh, I took a quick check on the Overland Park website. Uh, the median income last year was $72,000 for Overland Park. So one man owed roughly $98,000 and the other man owed about $9,800. Significant money, no matter how you look at it. Verse 42, when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of them both. And then Jesus to Simon, now, which of them will love him more? Simon's no dummy. He's engaged in theological sparring with people all the time. He knows that he has walked into a trap. And so he answers very hesitantly. Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he had canceled the larger debt. And Jesus says to him, you have judged rightly. And you see, at this point, Jesus is reminding Simon of something that is as true in the economic realm as it is in the spiritual realm. Forgiveness leads to love and gratitude. And the bigger the debt, the more we love the one who rescues us from it. So where is Jesus going with this? What is the point beyond this? Verse 44. Then turning to the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? Did you catch what Jesus did there? because I missed it when I first read it. The woman would have been standing behind Jesus. She would have been over here, but Simon would have been on this side of Jesus. And he looks at the woman. He really looks at her, but he's addressing Simon. Simon, do you see this woman? And what does Simon have to do? Simon has to look at the woman while Jesus is talking to him. Jesus is inviting him to see this woman in the same way that he sees her. Simon, I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet, not even basic courtesy. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. You didn't even give me a firm handshake or a hug, just a basic symbol of welcome. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. And you didn't anoint my head with even the cheapest of oil as a sign of welcome and respect. But this woman, she has anointed my feet with ointment, with the most expensive perfume that money can buy. The contrast is clear and it's striking. 
And then we get to the heart of this whole passage where Jesus starts to talk about why the woman is there and why Simon can't see what she sees. You see, unlike Simon, who can only see the religious externals that were happening, Jesus can see the heart. He can see Simon's heart. He can see her heart. He can see my heart. He can see your heart. Verse 47. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sin? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now we want to be clear here. The forgiveness that Jesus is offering is not a result of the actions that she's done at the beginning of the passage. How do we know that that's the case? Especially in light of verse 47. It sounds a little bit like the woman came and did some good things and now Jesus is rewarding her with forgiveness. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven for she loved much. It could be easy in English to read that the wrong way. Because she has loved much, therefore her sins are forgiven. But we know that that's not the case because Luke is very particular in how he records the passage so that he's conveying Jesus' meaning accurately. And Jesus, what Jesus is saying when he says in 47 and 48, your sins are forgiven, and then in 50, your faith has saved you, there's two types of tenses in Greek. One, uh, generally, two types of tenses. One of them is, sorry, I'm getting that wrong. There are two types of actions in Greek verbs. In, in Greek verbs, there can be punctiliar action, and that's kind of like a baseball. It just happens boom, one point in time. And then there's linear action. That's more like a rope. That can happen over a long, extended period. But right here, what we have is an unusual tense, an unusual type of action. It's called a perfect tense. And in a perfect tense, it's a combination of both punctiliar action and linear action. It's a little bit like when someone gets married. On a, on a certain you know, day, at a certain time, in a certain location, there's a wedding ceremony. And that wedding ceremony doesn't last forever, but what it does is it inaugurates a state of marriage that does continue. So the wedding isn't perpetual, but the marriage that it creates does go on and on. And so, in effect, what Jesus is saying to the woman here, your sins, which are many, have been forgiven decisively at one point in time in the past, and you are now continuing in that state of forgiveness. Jesus is shedding light on everything that happened when she came into the house and when she began to weep and when she cleaned his feet with her hair and when she anointed his feet and when she was kissing his feet. All of that is because she is in a state of forgiveness. Her faith has saved her and because of that, it's working itself out in those actions. I get a little bit of a chuckle out of the fact that Simon doesn't think, to know, uh, doesn't think Jesus seems to know what's going on in the room. Jesus knows exactly what's going on in the room. He doesn't need any help figuring out who the big sinners were that day. And the woman, her actions are illustrating a biblical principle that we see time and time again throughout Scripture. And it's simply this. When we see how great our need is and how utterly, absolutely amazing God's love and grace and forgiveness are, it melts our hearts. We respond sacrificially by giving and loving and coming and doing. 
gratitude and love pour out of us because what has poured into us. Simon couldn't see it that day. The Pharisees couldn't see it, but Jesus could. So what does all this mean? Where does this go? What does it have to do with missions? Well, I want us to think a little bit about why we do what we do when it comes to missions. I have to admit, you guys look like a pretty holy crowd. Now, I know you're not because you let Tony be your pastor. But, you know, Sunday morning, you're dressed up, you're on time, you listen very politely. Uh, And if I had to guess, that's probably a reflection of just how you live your normal life. You're good people. You work hard. You try and do your best. Play by the rules. Treat other people the way you would want to be treated. You make every effort to love your spouse even when they uh, ball up their socks and throw them in the hamper instead of undoing them. Or you get in the car and you see that the gas gauge is well below E and it hasn't been filled. Intentional about how we raise our children, how we love them, how we shepherd them. And I don't think that's any accident because that probably carries over into your spiritual lives as well, doesn't it? You give faithfully, you give generously, even when that big screen TV is maybe calling. You come to events like Missions Weekend. You pray for people like me and Bob Heppy and the Jensen's and other missionaries. Even when you're busy. Even when it feels like, you know, I'm not really getting a lot out of this, but I know I should do it, and it's a good thing to do, so I guess I'll keep doing it. You might have even taken a short-term trip uh, at some point in time with Redeemer or another church. And I want to commend you for all of those things. They are good and right things, and you should absolutely do them. The Bible does not tell us that obedience is only necessary when we feel like it. Jesus isn't a sometime savior. He is Lord all of the time. And as a missionary who depends on people who give generously to support the work that I do, I can tell you I'm very grateful when they write that check, whether they wanted to or not. It helps keep body and soul together. But today's passage isn't so much about what we do. It's about why we do what we do. What motivates us to do what we do? And as important as all of our actions are, Jesus never just looks at the actions. He sees where they come from. He sees the motivation behind them. Now, if you look at Simon and the sinful woman, you can see at a very deep heart level, they have very different reactions to Jesus. Why? I mean, after all, both Simon and the woman were extravagant sinners who stood in need of extravagant forgiveness that could only be provided by an extravagant Savior. The difference that explains their reactions is that Simon couldn't see that, but the woman could. Simon's actions, being aloof, condemning, kind of holding Jesus at arm's length as a theological sparring partner, all those things reveal a heart that show that Simon does not realize just how truly desperate he is. In some sense, his own goodness, his own good deeds have made a prison that he can't even see, let alone escape. Think about that. What what should Simon have done when Jesus showed up in his house? He should have pulled out all the stops. He should have thrown apart. This is a man who has studied the law nonstop, the prophets, the promises, and the very Messiah has come to his house to fulfill all of those promises. Instead of falling down in worship, he's so enamored with how he has done his religious duty that he treats Jesus just like a normal rabbi who maybe we like, maybe we don't like. 
The woman, on the other hand, her, her reaction reveals something else entirely, doesn't it? The sinful woman has come that day to Jesus because of his mercy and because of his grace. His forgiveness, his redemption of her were so motivating, she couldn't have stayed away if she wanted to. And so she goes to this place where she knows she will not be welcome to line up and stand behind Jesus. She's overcome with emotion and gratitude and she pours out her very best gift and uses it to anoint Jesus' feet and she kisses him. And it wasn't out of duty, it wasn't out of obligation, it wasn't because she was worried, you know, what are people going to think if I don't show up? She came that day because every day before then, everyone that she had ever met had said, you don't make it. Don't you see who you are? There's no hope for people like you. You should go away. You should really be ashamed. Nobody, nobody for most of her adult life had truly loved her until she met Jesus. And when she did, when she experienced that forgiveness, that love, she responds extravagantly with all that she has in the best way that she knows how. Now I have to admit, this leaves me with a little bit of a problem. Because on any given day, my heart tends to look more like Simon's than it does the woman's. Now, you know, I'm a, I'm a pastor, which means I've learned how to kind of fake it on the outside so that the actions still look okay, even if I don't feel like it. But it's so easy for me to be just like Simon, to be enamored with how well I've done, to be judgmental of those folks who aren't doing so well. What's wrong with them? How come they can't get it together? You should be a little bit more dedicated like me. And that's why it's so important that we really understand that we come back to the central point of this passage. Seeing how great our need is and then understanding how truly amazing God's love and forgiveness are, that's what melts my heart. That is what leads me to respond sacrificially out of gratitude and love. And in my case, at least, that's a daily need. I need Jesus the same way that I need air. When I try and do it on my own without him, even for just a few minutes, I start to slide back into that place where giving feels like a duty, where loving other people feels like a burden, where reaching out to people who haven't met Jesus yet feels scary. And it's a lot safer to just stay in my seat, not cause waves, not do anything. You see, when the gospel isn't flowing into me, it's never going to flow out of me. And those places where I can see that it's not flowing out cause me to come back to Jesus and say, what am I missing? Where am I missing my need? The response to this is, of course, to be, resp- to be reminded of how much we need Jesus. And that process mirrors the very same process that each of you experienced when you came to faith in Christ. The same truths that caused the woman to come and be present, the same truths that caused me to entrust my life to his hands, are the same things that remind me of who he is and help me to grow. And the gospel always begins with bad news before it's good news, right? We're sinners. We are broken. We cannot be our own savior. We have offended an infinite, holy God. Sometimes it's a little hard to identify uh, for me, you know, with the woman. As difficult as this is to believe, I'm very rarely propositioned these days in the way that the woman would have been propositioned. Everybody knew her sins, though. They were public. What would happen, though, if I had a TV screen that just followed me around over my head and gave you access to everything that I was thinking? 
Couldn't shut it off, couldn't hide it, couldn't cover it up 24-7. Anything that's running through my head is right up there for everyone to see. What would happen if you all had TV screens over your head? Everything that we are, all of our needs, perfectly available to everyone. Cheer up. You're a much bigger sinner than you know. That woman knew she was a big sinner. But the gospel doesn't stop there, does it? Because we have an amazing Savior. We have a best friend in Jesus who has forgiven our infinite debt. And how did he forgive it? Did he ignore it? Did he minimize it? Did he sweep it under the rug? No. He forgives it by paying it. And paying it with his very own blood. And he does that as a ransom so that he can redeem us. And so that he can set us free. And when he sets us free, he doesn't just leave us as orphans and spiritual paupers. He gives us all of his goodness, all of his righteousness. All of that is imputed to us the moment that we believe and trust him. He makes us spiritual multi-billionaires instead of leaving us to fend for ourselves. And in order to do these things, he establishes an eternal perfect union with us. The Holy Spirit dwells within us. All of God's covenant promises are fulfilled. And he reminds us that we have a father who loves us and who sings over us day and night with a strong song of passion and redemption. And he comes to us when it's hard and when we struggle. And he whispers, I love you so much. No matter where you've been, no matter what you're doing, no matter what you're facing, no matter how you're struggling, I love you love you. You're my son. You're my daughter. And he doesn't do that so that we can keep it all to ourselves or so that we can just be perfected. He does that so that we can lovingly, lavishly, promiscuously tell other people about this Savior that we've met people who don't know him yet, who won't hear about him without us, so that we can invite them to the party. And so that's really, I think, the passage's invitation to us this morning, is to be so totally enamored with Jesus because of what he has done, what he is doing in us, what he is going to do in us, that we freely, generously follow him, that we give sacrificially so that other people can meet him. It's a privilege to be here with you guys. I keep up with Tony and Nathan uh, to, to see how the church has grown over the years is fantastic. I know that you guys appreciate the word. It's preached regularly. You celebrate sacraments. Mercy is extended in this church. The kingdom goes forward because of the things that you do. And so let me just encourage you, in all of those good things, in all of that faithfulness, don't let the good that you're doing get in the way of seeing your own need. The woman knew that she was the biggest sinner walking into that room. I am too. So are you. And that's the only hope that this world has, is that big sinners like us point to an even bigger Savior. Because you see, no matter where you are, no matter what you do, we're never going to be very effective at sharing the gospel with others if secretly we think they need it just a little bit more than we do. Let's pray. Dad, uh, I love you. 
and yet I struggle. I believe, and yet I don't believe. There are times when I'm doing the things I know you want me to do, and it feels like I'm doing it uh, just because I have to, just uh, out of obligation, out of duty. And so when that happens for us, remind us how much we need you. Help us to fall in love with you all over again by hearing your voice and seeing what you've done, by experiencing your goodness and your grace and your mercy. Help us to live bold lives with open hands and soft hearts They invite everyone in so that we can be beggars who are showing other beggars where to find the bread. Invite people into the party to get to meet you and to see you and to know you. For all these things, for your goodness, for your grace, for your mercy, for the fact that we can come as full-fledged members of the family and sit down at the supper table with you right now. Thank you. Amen.